Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. You know, when we were talking about addressing this issue, it's so important. We had so much to talk about that we thought we, this would be important for a two-part episode. And so this will just be part one, and then we'll finish up with an episode that we'll have coming out in two weeks. Hey guys, I'm Mr. Patel, and I have a three-year-old son. With the recent protests relating to racial inequality and police violence, I was wondering what is an ideal age to talk about the subject of race and color with my son, and what are some resources to do that in an age-appropriate way? Great. I think this is such an important question and, of course, has been an important topic for decades, but is moving to the forefront of the conversations these days in the settings of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on all across the country. And we know about the recent tragic killings that were shared widely on social media of George Floyd, of Ahmad Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, and other Black individuals. And the, really, the communities have come together to resist systemic racism and police violence against people of color. Right. These demonstrations have been extremely powerful and communities have joined together to acknowledge the problems of both individual and institutional racism and try and work to find solutions both on an individual level, so us working to learn more, to address our own personal biases, and as well as on a systemic level, like fighting for policy changes. And because of how widespread these protests have been, many children have seen people protesting, and they're curious what they're protesting about. Some teens may have seen the videos on social media and maybe participated in the protests. And many parents are asking, how can they raise their children to be aware of racism and white privilege while also learning the importance of treating everyone fairly, regardless of skin color or cultural background? Right. And I know that most of our listeners know that Dr. Dean and I are both white physicians from more privileged position of never having to experience racism firsthand. And so we definitely don't consider ourselves anywhere close to experts on this topic um, and have a lot of work to do on our own to learn. So we um, invited one of our colleagues who has more experience with both being a black male physician as well as closely working with youth from marginalized backgrounds. So Dr. Makai Owen, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this really important topic. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Makai Owen is a general pediatrician here at UC Davis Children's Hospital. He's a community health advocate. He graduated from University of California, Davis for his pediatrics residency. And I remember working with him then and um, the wonderful grand rounds that you gave on ACEs that we've talked about, uh, the adverse childhood experiences at an earlier podcast. He did his fellowship at the University of Florida, Jacksonville in community and societal pediatrics. And he has been involved in working with youth in the criminal justice system as well. Wait, was I supposed to not say criminal justice? <laughs> Juvenile. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great point. I think um, 
with kids, uh, we, we talk about the difference between like the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system. The juvenile justice system is separate and apart uh, from the criminal justice system. And that's because, you know, developmentally, uh, children and adolescents are very different from adults uh, and their needs are very different from adults. Somewhat related topic, but kids can go into the criminal justice system, which is the justice system that we kind of hear about with adults. But uh, first, they usually will go through the juvenile justice system. And if they're going to be transferred to the criminal justice system, there's usually various mechanisms they have to go through in order to get there. Uh, And we advocate that as much as possible, uh, kids be kept in the juvenile justice system as opposed to the criminal justice system. Right. Thank you for that. So theoretically, the juvenile justice system is designed to meet the needs of children and is more appropriate for them. And um, Dr. Mackay Owens also worked with foster care. He's passionate about population health for children and adolescents from marginalized backgrounds. And one of the last times Dr. Owen and I were together, we were holding up signs at our Sacramento White Coats for Black Lives protest. Um, so, um, Dr. Owen, I'm just curious, how have the last few months been for you, both as a black male and as a parent of, you know, young black kids. I mean, are you feeling inspired by what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, I don't know if inspired is the word I would lead with more so. I think it's past frustration and I think to kind of outright anger. Yeah. Um, you know, for many of us who, who've seen the, the videotape, I think it was just heartbreaking and and devastating. And I think there is some inspiration in the fact that in some ways, this time seems to be, you know, different in prompting some some more serious discussion about, you know, police violence and about what the experience of uh, African-Americans are in this country. Um, but I think for many of us, a lot of the anger and the frustration is that, you know, these episodes aren't new. And we talk about it a lot because I think we, we caught this one on camera. Same with the Mud Arbery. We caught it on camera and it was so devastating to see on camera that it, it triggered a discussion. But I think, you know, for centuries and for generations that uh, black people have been kind of talking that this is a real thing and this is happening. And I think another real point of anger and frustration is it feels like, I think for many African-Americans that if it's not caught on tape, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of impact. I was just going to say, you don't want to live your life with your cell phone camera on or your phone out waiting for something to happen, you know? Yeah, I just think that's an important point because, you know, what we're talking about is these incidents that were caught by video, but that's the tip of the iceberg, right? Because there's incidents like this that presumably happen all the time that people didn't have a video of. The cell phone camera wasn't on. There wasn't a surveillance camera or something on. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's the tip of the iceberg and, and, you know, murder is at the end of the spectrum, um, but we don't really have a lot of uh, data or know a lot about, you know, other acts of violence or other acts of oppression that are experienced by um, Black people that don't end in murder that's caught on camera. And I think that, you know, Black people have been saying that these things happen very, very frequently. Uh, and they haven't always been uh, believed. And it feels like if it's not caught on camera, the discussion and the narrative is a lot different. We mentioned the term structural racism um, and institutional racism. And can we define these terms? Because I get 
confused sometimes um, by what they're specifically referring to. Yeah, I think structural and institutional racism are similar. You know, there's individual slash interpersonal racism and then structural and institutional racism. So individual racism could be that, you know, judgment, bias, um, stereotypes or generalizations that people have about other people that are based on race and ethnicity. And it can manifest itself in various ways, um, sometimes with illegal discrimination, um, sometimes with violence and sometimes with microaggression. And then there's structural and interpersonal relationship, which is more of the kind of interplay of the policies, practices and programs uh, that institutions have or the historical and ongoing policies and practices that kind of create and maintain inequity in in between uh, races and ethnicities. Yeah, I always think of like one example of institutional will be um, you know, medicine, our, all of our profession has not been great at um, dealing with institutional racism in the past. So you always think about like the the wall of white men, which is like the picture of all of the past deans of the medical school or the, and I'm not like making an overarching comment, but typically like most medical schools or institutions will have this wall of old white men. And that may be just more of an act of institutional racism, like that you have not seen people of color or Um, women or other people rise to these high positions in the past. And I think that's a great point because it it is really, really related to structural racism as well, because there's all these kind of structural issues and and historical policies that have led to that kind of institutional result that you just described. So there's all these advantages that those individuals have accumulated um, over time that still persist um, that kind of drives inequities going forward. And I think community violence and what we're seeing, police violence and what we're seeing with the COVID pandemic are all great examples of how structural racism manifests itself. Yeah. And then for individual racism, um, you mentioned personal bias. And obviously, this is something that's learned from a young age. So I think during our discussion, we'll talk about how we may be able to help kids uh, minimize their risk for individual racism and bias. But you also mentioned something um, like the term microaggressions. Do you mind defining that for our listeners? Microaggressions could be things that maybe are not like an, you know, an outright rude or disrespectful comment to someone, um, but you know, comments that are um, really offensive or kind of geared towards someone's race or ethnicity in an everyday environment. So I think um, many Black people in the workplace have kind of experienced like comments about maybe their body type, how they wear their hair, what kind of food they eat, things that, you know, are meant to kind of be insults to us that um, maybe part of our physical appearance, maybe part of our culture, maybe just part of some of the um, different norms in our cultural experience that that are kind of used and weaponized in the professional environment to make us feel uncomfortable, uh, make us feel unwelcome, uh, and create an environment in which uh, we don't, you know, have the same opportunities to thrive as some of our colleagues. Like, so when you're saying like, oh, your hair is so cool, like, you wouldn't say that to like me with short blonde hair. And so when you're saying that over and over to a, a, a woman of color, is that an example of a microaggression? Yeah, it could be. Or I've seen I've had women of color colleagues or, or people in front of, you know, a group might ask to touch their hair 
or you know touch a part of their body in a way that they would not do to white people so i think they're you know that that is a great example and and that people may experience you know somewhat frequently in the workplace well as pediatricians i think it's important for us to give a background of how we see the impacts of racism in children's health specifically so right now we've talked about sort of the systemic racism and individual racism across adults um but there are, you know, lots of studies looking at racism and how it affects children's health. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the bottom line of those studies is that the impact of of racism is really, especially structural racism, is really pervasive and really can shape a young person's life in a numerous amount of ways. So, you know, it kind of impacts where you live and uh, the kind of housing you have access to. It impacts what you eat, whether you have access to like fresh foods and vegetable. It impacts the quality of your education and how much access you have and what kind of resources that you have if you're struggling in school. It impacts, you know, the amount of policing in your neighborhood and whether or not you're more likely to have interaction with police because of the number of police that are present. So I think that, you know, it's really hard uh, to overstate the impact that structural racism has on the health, well-being, and development of children. And as pediatricians, we know that kind of childhood sets the foundation uh, for the rest of your life. And the experiences and environment of childhood are going to have a profound impact on your, your long-term health, your long-term well-being, your developmental trajectory. And structural racism really does kind of set that developmental point kind of lower and makes it such that these kids have a lot more that they have to overcome in compared to their colleagues or their peers. So you talked about a lot of the societal issues, but we also talked about some of the environmental issues that the structural racism leads to that lead to medical issue. I mean, racism is a medical issue. It's not just a societal issue. I mean, the racism will lead to increased obesity, increased rates of asthma, crowding, so maybe increased infections, all, all those things. So this is a medical issue we're talking about, not only a societal issue, correct? Absolutely. And I think it's really important to phrase it like that, um, because as a pediatrician, I totally agree that that's a medical issue. And since it's a medical issue, um, as pediatricians, it's our job to promote the health and well-being of our patients and children in the community, uh, which is why I think we're we're kind of seeing more and more physicians start to speak on sh- structural and interpersonal racism as a social determinant of health and call for changes kind of in the clinical setting, but also in the non-clinical setting uh, to improve outcomes and, and really achieve equity uh, in health and well-being among our children and among our society. So I can tell you within my specific specialty community with infectious diseases that on some online discussions, um, when people brought up that this is a really important medical issue that we need to address and have not addressed in the past, we've ignored it for too long, there was a lot of pushback and a lot of the infectious disease people said stuff like, oh, you know, why, why are we talking politics is what they would say. And then there was, you know, a secondary response to that is like, we're doctors, we care about patients, this affects their health. We need to speak to this issue because it's a health issue also. 
And I'll just follow up on that by saying, I think it was the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, correct me if I'm wrong, but they put out an incredibly powerful statement to me as a Black person that acknowledged that, you know, Black men were more likely to die at the hands of police than they were from, from COVID. And that was in response to some of the protests that were going on. And as a Black pediatrician, you know, that was incredibly uh, meaningful to me because I think many of us have often felt that, you know, maybe the medical community or the professional organizations aren't recognizing the lived experience of some of their patients. And I think that was a great example of the tide hopefully starting to change. Uh, and that statement I thought was was very powerful and very honest. And I think that it's important to highlight Really, these changes, as we've talked about, are not due to any genetic differences. So in medicine, you learn things like, oh, Blacks have a higher likelihood of developing hypertension. And that, again, goes back to individual and structural racism and not a genetic predisposition for developing these conditions. Um, And so it's just important to highlight, again, all of these medical problems that we see a higher percentage in Black communities are due to this underlying racism and not genetic difference. There's no genetic difference. Yeah, I think that's also a great point. And, you know, I was in med school from 2007 to 2012. And even as soon as then, there was a fair amount in the curriculum that spoke about race-based differences. And there's a real movement in the medical community now to kind of eliminate those, you know, race-based references. Like GFR is is a big one that Mm, I've seen in that. Um, they're not really explained by differences in race and ethnicity. They're explained by other factors. But I think there's examples of that kind of structural racism being propagated over time and not being addressed until now. Yeah, so you mentioned GFRs. We should just spell that out. That's glomer- Well, actually, Dr. Lena should explain that. That's glomerular f- f- filtration rate, right? Yeah, it's just a marker of um, kidney function as what we were talking about. So, But they do mark on the lab reports, they say they have two normal ranges, yeah. right? Yeah. So they have range for um, for black and they have uh, the other range, right? So it's, I never paid attention to that because it's not my area of expertise. Yeah. And many institutions now, you know, they stopped doing that and have advocated for any kind of markers like that or any marker like that to be eliminated and removed because it, it, it's not you know, scientifically valid. So you had mentioned the the statement that was talking about how African-American men are more likely to die at the hands of police than from COVID, which I think is a very powerful statement. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the impact of police violence on people of color and why it is a public health topic. Yeah, I think there's a couple. Number one, just the the sheer numbers you know there's a study that says right now like one in a thousand black men can expect to die at the hands of uh, police violence which you know a mortality rate of one in a thousand is a public health crisis and then i think when we talk about the impact of police violence on people of color you know i think there's the obvious and immediate ones the, the being a victim of violence and what that means for your personal life and witnessing or experiencing violence and and the mental health outcomes and the anxiety and worry that may come with it when you see it directly. Um, But I think it's it's much more pervasive than many people may realize. 
So I think a great example of this, there's a, a video on social media that went viral of a, a young black male playing basketball in his front yard. And then he looks kind of to the side and then he ducks and hides behind a car. And then you see a police car driving by. And when the police car driving by, he kind of looks around to make sure it's gone and then starts playing again. And I think that's really indicative of kind of how many black children live in a state of fear. And if you fear the police, who do you go to if you're being abused and, you, you know, you don't feel safe? And also, I think African-American parents have long known that the risk is different for black children. So, you know, many black children have had that we call the talk where your parents or your grandparents kind of talk to you about how to navigate a world that's unfair you know, how do you respond if a police officer is being aggressive to you or if someone else is being aggressive to you and, and how to make sure that you're not presenting yourself as a threat? And I think there's a lot to unpack there. But to summarize it, I think that parents feel like they have to raise their children in a way that protects them from a real dangerous world, a real unfair world. And it kind of really changes how you interact with your child, how you parent your child, how you prepare your child. And I think it could end up manifesting uh, in a lot of different ways. And I don't, certainly don't blame the parents because I think it, it is true that that is a world that, you know, many black uh, children experience. Um, but it's just a kind of a very pervasive impact on the lived experience of, of black children and the lived experience of black parents. It's really challenging. You know, we have had a separate podcast on adverse childhood experiences and have talked about like the stress response, right? Like the cortisol goes up. And in the end, that's the thing that ends up damaging blood vessels and leading to all of these other things. And, you know, you look at that video of that little boy and you think, yeah, his stress response went up. And if that happens every time you see a police officer, um, it just goes back to that whole um Again, systemic racism causing health problems and as well as mental health problems. There was a really interesting study that was done um, surveying communities after a police killing, and it really showed that um, there are significant, significant mental health outcomes even for people that witnessed it as bystanders or on the news in that community. And they found it to actually be close to the mental health burden of someone with diabetes, which we know is like a huge disease that many people can think of. So it does affect not only the person, but the community around them as well. So we will continue this really important conversation with Dr. Makai Owen in part two of our two-part series on racism and discussing racism with children. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.